This sermon was recorded at Church of the Ascension, an Anglican parish in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, whose mission is to be a worshipping community that equips God's people and shares Christ's healing with a broken world. For more information, please visit ascensionpittsburgh.org. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. I invite you to take your seat. Our gospel reading this morning shows us Jesus walking on the water. It's a very strange story, and I think it's helpful for us to think of it as a new chapter in an ongoing drama. It's a drama with three main characters. The waters themselves, the God of Israel, and then the people of God. So we'll look at all those three characters in turn. And it might be odd for us to think about the waters as a character, but it's a theme that I think we can see throughout Scripture. And what I want us to see as we walk through this together, and what I want us to hold on to this morning, is this. It is Jesus who commands the waters. So let's think about the waters, first of all, our first character. When I finished seminary at Trinity School for Ministry a few years ago, Rebecca and I moved to Tallahassee, Florida. That was so I could do a curacy program at a church there. And we both grew up here in Pittsburgh, very far from the coast. So we were pretty excited to be living a little bit closer to the water. For us, the beach was always where you go on vacation. You know, all the cars have the OBX stickers. It's a symbol of where you want to go when you have time to go somewhere beautiful. So we thought it'd be great to live closer to the water, although Tallahassee's not a, a beach town, as you probably know. So we moved there late summer, right before hurricane season. I'm embarrassed to admit that when the first big storm came through our area, we really had no idea what we were doing. Somebody called us and told us to fill the bathtub with water, which we did, not knowing exactly why. But otherwise, we were kind of excited. The church had set up a house for us uh, out on a tree farm outside of town, and we had a, sort of a little cabin there. And so we spent the evening in the loft watching Ghostbusters and eating ice cream. It didn't seem like anything that serious happened, but we woke up the next morning to news of trees downed all over the city and thousands of households without power. And that situation continued for days. It was a major disruption and tragedy for a lot of people. So I think the Lord was just kind to us in our ignorance that time. But after that, we had to enter into this suspense of hurricane season. So how is this storm going to develop? Where is it going to make landfall? How intense will it be? There was a lot of drama and suspense each year at that time. The, the following year, Rebecca and Sable were up in Pittsburgh visiting family, and I ended up evacuating to Nashville uh, when the storm came through. And we did lose power for quite a few days, and I had just made fresh tomatillo salsa, and I left it in the refrigerator, and it all went to waste. By God's grace, that was the worst thing that happened to us that time. But it was still a major disruption. So after our time in Florida, we moved to the Rio Grande Valley of Texas. And we were even a little bit closer to the Gulf of Mexico. And there, even though it's called a valley, 
the ground is extremely flat. So when a whole bunch of water falls out of the sky or is swept up from the Gulf, there's nowhere for it to go. So one year, um, the mission where we were serving took about three feet of water, uh, really filthy water. And it was weeks and months of cutting out drywall and trying to restore it back to a usable place. I remember seeing prayer books and Bibles that had been in that water, you know, in front of the fan, trying to dry out the pages so they wouldn't get moldy, and just feeling personally offended by this audacious flood that came into our little mission. I think that feeling of the water being a threat, of being an adversary, is what most of the readers of Scripture would have. It represents evil and chaos that can rise up at any moment and sweep away all we hold dear. So we here in Pittsburgh, again, we might not be terrified by the idea of the waters, but I wonder what that thing is for us that feels like evil and chaos. Throughout scripture, we see this dynamic. Even in the story of Jonah that we just heard, um, the waters sweep up to the boat where he is, and he's thrown down into the water, and he goes down to the very bottom. But for Jonah, being under the waters is being as far as possible from God's presence. And think about the story of the Exodus that Mother Jess reminded us of last week. The newly liberated people of God think they've escaped, but then they find themselves trapped against the waters of the Red Sea, with the sea on one side and the chariots of Pharaoh on the other side facing certain doom on both sides. And even all the way back to the creation story, we see God creating against the backdrop of the dark, swirling waters. Genesis 1.1 says, The earth was a formless void, and darkness covered the face of the deep. So coming back to our gospel story in the New Testament, the waters are again rising up against the people of God and threatening to destroy them. Jesus has sent his disciples ahead of him in a boat, but a storm comes up and they are battered by the waves far from the land, for the wind was against them, it says. So the idea of the waters of the sea, that might not fill us with fear with where we live. We're talking about a true story of a real storm that affected real people in real danger. But I also think we're seeing evil and chaos on display. The waters represent the things that scare us. So I've been thinking this week about what, is, what has that power to capture my heart like the sea does? What is that dark, swirling force which threatens me and what I love? There are situations that I see that feel like that coming hurricane. Rebecca will tell you that I'm pretty good at finding silver linings, even in the midst of hard situations. But in the last few months, I feel like there have been more and more situations where it feels irreverent to jump right to a silver lining. And I have to be honest and say, I can't imagine a good outcome from this situation. My role here is as a missionary in residence, focusing on refugees and recent immigrants. And because of that, Rebecca and I get to connect every day with people whose lives 
have been thrown around by war, by unjust treatment in their home countries and in their host countries, by families breaking apart, by undiagnosed mental illness, by unresolved trauma, by underemployment, by a horribly broken immigration system here. Sometimes all I can see is evil and chaos threatening to sweep away those who have already suffered the most. That's where I see the power of evil and chaos in this world. And I wonder where you feel that. Where do you feel that power and where do you struggle to imagine a good outcome of what could come? That's the first character in our drama, the waters. But from the very beginning of our scriptures, we see the God of Israel ruling over the waters. And this is the second character in our drama, the God of Israel. He rescues Jonah from the bottom of the sea in the most unusual way. And Jonah proclaims, I called to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. In the Exodus, God separates the waters of the Red Sea and lets his people escape. And even at the very beginning, the Spirit of God hovers over the waters and the voice of God tames the watery chaos. God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. The God of Israel consistently shows that he is more powerful than the most powerful evil and chaos in our world. The psalm we just read together, Psalm 29, proclaims this beautifully. It is the Lord that commands the waters. It is the Lord that rules the sea. The Lord sits above the floodwaters, and the Lord remains king forever. So with all of these stories in our minds, what happens in our gospel reading is not completely surprising. We see the God of Israel once more showing that he is Lord over the waters. Of course God can tame the waters. Of course he can walk on the flood. But what is surprising in this story is that Jesus of Nazareth steps onto the scene. That Jesus of Nazareth is, is in the place of God ruling over the waters. It's him who walks to them on the lake, meets them in the middle of the sea. It's him who reaches out and rescues Peter. It's him who gets in the boat and causes the wind to stop. The surprise truth of our gospel text is that Jesus himself is the Son of God, the God of creation reigning supreme. This is the uniquely Christian message. It's not just that there's some God out there, that there's a powerful creator out there somewhere, but that God comes to us. God takes on flesh and gets in the boat with us. We see that the voice of the Lord that commands the waters is none other than the Word who became flesh and lives with us. Do you remember what Jesus says when the disciples see him and think that he's a ghost? Take heart. It is I. Do not be afraid. 
And in the Greek text, Jesus is not just saying, it's me. He's using a unique name for God that comes from the book of Exodus. When Moses asks God for his name, the answer is, I am who I am. So Jesus uses the Greek form of this name. So he's not just saying, it's me. He's saying, take heart, I am. Do not be afraid. By the end of the story, the disciples seem to get the message. It says that those in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. Brothers and sisters, it is Jesus who commands the waters. And this is incredibly good news for us as the people of God. And this is the final character in our drama, the people of God. The disciples in the boat, they represent all of us, and they provide us a full range of possible responses to the waters of this world. It ranges from terror in the storm, terror when they see Jesus, to presumption, Peter inviting himself out to copy Jesus's miracle, to amazing faith, back to panic when Peter again sees the wind. They're kind of all over the place, kind of a mess, kind of a mixed bag. But by the end of it, they get to see Jesus for who he is, and he rescues them. We too are storm-tossed, and we cycle through all those responses very quickly and very frequently. But amidst our ups and downs, the truth remains that it is Jesus who commands the waters. Now, I have to be honest that this does introduce a problem. If it's really Jesus who's in charge of the waters, why doesn't he just make it all stop? If he is our friend and our savior, why does he send us out on the boat on our own? Why does he wait so long to come to us? Why does he let us panic and screw up again and again and again? If it's really Jesus who commands the water, Why doesn't he stop the storm? And I wish I knew a satisfactory answer to that question, but I honestly don't. The storms continue. The drama continues. And still, God's people are tossed about by many storms. But I do know this. The same Jesus who walked on the water To the disciples, he walks toward us today through his word and in the bread and the wine. The same Jesus who rescued presumptuous Peter can rescue us and gently remind us, you of little faith, why did you doubt? The same Jesus who commands the waters can command our stormy hearts and speak to us again, take heart, I am. Do not be afraid. And, perhaps best of all, at the very end of the Bible, we get to see a preview of what the world will look like when Jesus' work is complete. The book of Revelation says this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. 
No more chaos, no more evil, no more fear. The same Jesus who calmed that storm will one day command all storms to stop. Brothers and sisters, it is Jesus who commands the waters. Amen. And may God bless you.